Welcome to this week's Dewsbury Gospel Church podcast with Pastor Ward. Your grace and your mercy, we thank you, Father, for the very fact that you watched over us as a nation during those two great wars. And we want to thank you, Lord, for those who committed their lives, the hundreds of thousands that were willing to stand in the gap and to preserve our freedom as a nation. We believe, Lord, that you are the sovereign Lord, and yet you allow men to do and have that freedom, even to kill one another. And yet, Father, we know that the history of your word tells us that there have been wars many wars, and yet the Lord Jesus himself said that before he came again, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and so it has continued, just as he said. And yet, Lord, we know that there is an end to these things, even as you decide the time of your return. And we know that Father is ready to see all of these things change because of what you did for us, Lord. And And as we remember those who have fallen, we also remember the very love that you had for us, that you committed your life for those you had created. And and so we give you thanks and we give you praise. But we pray also for our current forces, for our Navy, for the Army, for the Royal Air Force. We thank you for Kay, a student of the school here that one day decided that she was going to serve in, in that capacity, and we thank you for her commitment. Also, thank you for the safety that you assure us of, even in those times when she was in Afghanistan. And, and that, Father, we, we know that you're calling for your people in these days to stand up and be counted, whether we're in the forces or whether we're just going about daily activities, Lord. We know how important it is to continue to believe for our nation, to pray for our leaders. And so we do, Father. We pray even during that service last night that the hearts of the leaders might have been touched. We pray for the royal family. We thank you for her majesty. Who has stayed the course, who has held to the Christian faith, who has proclaimed the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you continue to to bless her, and we pray for a successor, that Father God, that you continue to move by your spirit in that area. We know how important it is, as we see kings that have served you, but we have also understood that there were many that turned away from you. And we know that the results of that was disaster for the nations that they were over. So Father God, again, we give you thanks, we give you praise. And we ask you to bless families today, especially those who have lost loved ones. And many recently, we know that, Father, that you'll give them strength. But, Lord, that by your grace and by your mercy, that men and women everywhere will turn to you, the living God. will call on the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and surrender life, lives unto him. For we know only he has the keys of everlasting life. And we know, Father, it's contained in the gospel that you've given us to preach. And we give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. It will be good for us at this time to um, break bread. And, uh, of course, we do this in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. And so uh, as we come, we are aware that this is a very important uh, part of ministry of the church it says in the book of Acts that they basically used to meet on a weekly basis and, and the four types of meetings that they had, and it's significant. We have our notices. We tell you what the meetings are. And uh, we've always tried to continue in the light of the New Testament basis of, of why believers meet together. And sometimes we forget these things. But it says that when they came together, they met for prayer. They met for the word of God being pronounced. They also met for fellowship. They would 
be the part of the gifts of the Spirit being manifest also in the gatherings, but also that they met for the breaking of bread. And because it was a commission from the Lord to do this in remembrance of him as he declared it to his disciples. And so that's what we're going to do. But communion is not only vertical with the Lord, we are remembering the Lord Jesus, but it's also um, horizontal in that, that as we, we take the bread and we pass it to one another, we're, we're showing our communion with one another. And I really believe that the basis of communion was so that, that we might be mindful always that we have to uh, keep good relationships with one another. In other words, uh, communion is all about love. It's a love feast. We're declaring our love for God, but we're also declaring our love for one another. Now, we can't love one another if we're holding anything within our heart. That's why Paul, in writing in Corinthians 11, he said uh, to make sure that you know, we're, we're taking this meal in a correct manner. So important that we hold nothing against one another. In other words, the, the reason, and uh, you know, sometimes we get the idea, well, I can't really take communion because I'm not right with God. And, and some people will think that they've got to withhold from taking communion. But it's the very reason you should be taking communion on the basis that this gives you the opportunity to ask for God to forgive if there is anything there that is not right. And, and we're, we know by the symbols that we are partaking of, the wine is symbolic, of course, of the shed blood of Jesus. What does the blood of Jesus do for us? It cleanses us from all sin. And uh, that's, that's good news. Now, we know that our sins have actually been dealt with and taken care of, but if there is anything, then the Word of God says you must confess your sin. And, uh, and as we do, Jesus says, I take it as far as the east is from the west. I remember it no more. What a glorious gospel we have. So no matter what it is, we can get it right. And communion is always a reminder, you see, uh, of what Jesus did. Why did he go to the cross? So that our sins might be forgiven, that our bodies could be healed. And so we break the bread, and it's symbolic of the body that was broken, that we might have made all. And, and so uh, we have the fullness of the gospel in this meal. And so we should remember that and stand on it and allow it to be part of us. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you take the wine and it, it comes to be part of your body. You take it internally and it becomes a part of you. And that's exactly what Jesus meant, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we're taking the word of God and what it says about the bread and wine into our very being, into our spirit, it will become a part of you, and it, it feeds our spirit. So it's an important meal. Watchman Nee, the great Chinese uh, uh, Bible teacher, he said that this, of all the meetings that we have in the Christian church, is the most important because it carries so much power. Do you know that you can be healed as you take this meal? There is healing in communion. And uh, the salvation in communion. So we shouldn't run away from it. We should embrace it and, uh, and draw everything out of it that we can. You know, take it unto yourself. Let this be something that uh, really uh, gets into your spirit. God can cause great joy to come at times like this also when we understand this is freedom. Praise God. And, uh, and we, we declare freedom over each and every one this morning as you take the cup. So we're going to do this now. And uh, as I say, we, we take the bread um, and uh, wine as it comes to you. Uh, people do it in various ways. Um, but uh, just as what is pleasing to you. But the important thing is that you're having fellowship in this meal. And yet you're communing with the Lord and give him thanks from your heart. Give him praise for what he has done for you. And so what we find in communion, this is important, that, that you are fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus himself. He is our brother, he is our friend, he is our Savior, He is our Lord, but He invites us to do this and to keep this meal. And so we shall do that. 
But once we have taken the cup and once we have uh, taken the bread and once we have rejoiced in this meal, you know, some people get the idea that communion is a somber thing. Well, it's serious, but it's also joyful. It's a celebration. It's a celebration meal. But once we have participated in this way, your heart now should then go to the Father, you know, for his grace towards us because he is uh, God and our Father. And we are his children, and, uh, and so we, uh, we enjoy this fellowship that we have together as we take this meal. Amen. Praise God. Thank Amy for finding that uh, for us to uh, listen to as we've been studying the book of Jonah. And Jonah is just four chapters long. You can read it in 15 minutes, and yet it contains, as Billy Graham was saying, the greatest revival that the world has ever known. And it took place amongst the Gentile nation. Jonah was the one prophet that was called to preach to the Gentiles, and uh, he didn't want to do it. He didn't think that this was right for God to send him to Nineveh, a godless people, a people who were the arch enemy of Israel. And he knew God. He knew that God was a loving God. And this was his problem. He was saying, God, you're merciful. And I don't want you to save these people because they are so evil, and they were. And of course, in the beginning of the book of Jonah, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatei, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. People... When they read the Old Testament, they tend to feel that, that basically God is a God who will just wipe people out, and yet he is always a merciful God. He's already declared his love for people. But Jonah had a problem. The word of the Lord came to him, and it's always a reminder that the word of the Lord comes to you and me. Some people say, well, I've never heard God speaking to me, but God is speaking all the time. Our problem is in our listening or recognizing his voice when he speaks. But how important it is that, that we don't do what Jonah did, which was to try and avoid God's will. Jonah was God's man. He was a prophet. He was a good man. He was so for his nation of Israel, that he could see no way that, that God could be right in doing what he was doing and giving them an opportunity to repent. And so God called him, of all of the prophets, to bring this incredible message. And when I was thinking about the calling that God has, you know, it says in the word of God, Jesus said it, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. And he's chosen us all by name. And, and we think, well, why did God choose us? Well, those things are in God. And why did he choose you to do certain things? Jonah was saying, why did you choose me to bring this message? But God's always right. He always knows what is best for us. And if you just turn over into the uh, book of Jeremiah... And you see the same thing, God preparing his prophet for the time in which he lived. And it's the same thing, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And in verse 4 and verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. This first chapter, Jeremiah, the prophet. He says, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And again, Jeremiah was of, of the heart. Well, why have you chosen me? I, I'm not the right person. I can't speak. I can't do these things. 
So in verse 6, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I'm a youth. We were saying last week, you know, youth need to rise up in this generation and let God be God to you and see what he'll do. Sometimes he finds difficulty with older people because we can get stayed in our ways if we're not careful. God looked for a, a young man called Jeremiah. And God answers him. He says, don't you say to me, I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. We find in the uh, letter that Paul sent to Timothy, a young man who we believe had been saved through the ministry of Paul. And he was going to raise, be raised up to be a great leader in the church. And Paul says, don't let people despise your youth. Now he also does say in the same writings of Paul that we're not to put people into office who are spiritually immature. And... You know, novices, it puts it in the King James. In other words, when God calls someone, he has already dealt with them. Even with Jeremiah, it says, I have sanctified you before you were in your mother's womb. So God knows all that will take place in our life. He sees the beginning to the end. Jesus, in, in speaking to John in the book of Revelation... He declared himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he said, John, I want you to write these things down for those that are going to follow. And he said to make sure that these things are put in a book and so that people can read it. And he said that when people read this book, this book of Revelation, there is promised blessing there's a lot of people don't read the book of Revelation, but it's the one book in the whole of the Bible that says when you read it, you will receive a blessing. It's the command of God. And, uh, and so we need to take note, you see, of what God says in his word very clearly. So what do we have here with Jeremiah? The same as Jonah. Now, Jonah had ministries that we don't know about. We only know of what those four chapters contain. And it seems as if Jonah does nothing but try to avoid God in many ways. But there's a calling and there's a separation. You see this word that God says about Jeremiah that he sanctified him before he was born. Sanctification is a, a separating, a separating from the way the world goes and the way that God wants you and me to go. He has sanctified us. He has separated us unto the gospel. He has called us to live differently. If people cannot see a difference in the way you live, then you have to question whether you really are in Christ, whether you really have been born again, because it says if any man is in Christ, he becomes a new creature, a new person. All things are passed away. All things become new. And so they should see a difference in us. You know, someone said that the only gospel that some people will ever read will be you. But if they can see the gospel in you, it can draw them to Christ. It can give them a sense of, of God loves me also. If he's done this for them, when they hear your testimony, and some of us have different types of testimonies, but through it God will use us to draw people to himself. So there's a calling of the prophet. There's a calling of believers we are called, but we are also separated unto the gospel. Some people just are satisfied with being called into the kingdom. And you can get into heaven just on that alone because it's by the grace of God. But God has called us to be separated unto what he has called us to so that we will serve him. This was the problem that Jonah was having because God had called him for a specific purpose, to preach a message that would do even what Billy Graham has never yet seen. And yet, on one occasion, Billy Graham preached to over one million people. 
in one service. And they say that he, in that one service he preached to more people than Paul did in all of his ministry. And yet he was just a young man in Bible college in Florida. I think just about 17 years old. And he heard the call. And he wasn't the best pupil in the college. His grades weren't the highest. He wasn't special in that way. But he knew he had a calling. And he would go down into the Everglades in Florida and he would preach to the alligators. They probably all got saved. (laughs) But that's how he started. That's how he practiced. But it was burning in his heart. He had no idea how God was going to take him over the years. And I don't know, he's heading for a hundred at the moment. I think Bev Shea just went to be with the Lord at 102. These men of God that stuck together, they formed an agreement in their very early days, back I believe in the 1940s. I think they preached, started preaching around about 48, something like that, with the great campaign in Los Angeles, the first one. And then God used them and stirred them to to believe for even greater things. And so they went throughout the whole world. And what a blessing. But you know, Billy Graham made this statement once. I'd never forget it. He said, the only reason that God raised me up to be an evangelist of this type, in other words, going around the world, is because the church has failed in its duty to preach the gospel. You see, we know that Paul talks about the fivefold ministry of the church, that each church should have a fivefold ministry of the pastor, the teacher, the prophet, the apostle, the evangelist. Probably all of those giftings were in Paul, the great apostle. We see his ministry covering all of those areas. And yet, if all of those ministries were effectively in the local church, You wouldn't need the Billy Graham. And yet, God in his grace and in his mercy, over times he has raised up great men of God like John Wesley, Charles Wesley, William Booth, and and so many more that we know have uh, even originated from this nation. We were a nation and the first nation to begin to send missionaries out into all the world. That's why I believe that, that this nation... Is very close to the heart of God. And he is willing to once again come and to bring probably the greatest revival that has ever yet been seen in this nation. Why did Billy Graham say that that was the greatest revival of all? Well, Nineveh, as he said, was probably around about 600,000. Um, that's obviously population wasn't like it is today. But it would be equivalent for God saying to you, I want you to go and preach in London and begin to speak to them as a nation and to see every man, woman, boy and girl born again. You see, it said everyone got saved in Nineveh, including the king. There's never been a revival where you could say every person was born again. They actually said of the revival that started in Dewsbury in 1792, over a period of 40 or 50 years, that one in 10 in the whole of the nation of the United Kingdom got born again. And that started in Dewsbury. But it's still just one in 10. But let's face it, if we had one in 10 born again, we, uh, we would be quite happy about that. That would mean if we have a a town of Jewsbury, I don't know, they say, what, 60, 70,000? Well, even if six or 7,000 got born again in one day, it still would be far short of what happened in Nineveh. And yet, wouldn't we be rejoicing? In fact, you would have to say, would we be able to contain all of those people in our church buildings? Likely it is, probably not. We could squeeze maybe three, four hundred in here, 
Minster, maybe kind of, but you work it out. We, we would be doing what they probably did in the book of Acts and be having the meetings outside. And you wouldn't be worried about the cold either. You could huddle together with a few 3,000 uh, so, souls. I see we've got to see way beyond the natural, haven't we? And Jonah, bless him, he was struggling. So let's go back. We covered more or less the first chapter of Jonah. And um, I'm going to read from verse 15 of chapter 1. We'll read to the end of chapter 2. You get the old picture. This is, uh, this is to do with Jonah in the belly of the fish. It says in verse 15, Remember that this storm had blown up and... Uh, the ship is full of these mariners. The ship is uh, in danger of going down. They've actually got rid of the heavy load, the cargo they were carrying. They were probably on their way to Spain. It would seem that, that basically Jonah was trying to get away as far as he could from Nineveh. And of course we know Nineveh is, is that part that... Uh, we, uh, we read about in these days in the sense of it's kind of in that area of Syria and um, we know all things are going on at this moment in time near Damascus and uh, it's amazing how these towns and cities of the Bible are now in our newspapers every day of what's happening and we've seen it in Iraq and Syria and all of these things that are taking place. And here it says... Uh, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea because the sailors had been questioning this man who had paid his fare to go on this trip so he could get away from God. And, and it would seem that he'd also indicated uh, to the other sailors, the problem is with me. The reason this storm has blown up is that God is doing this because I have being disobedient, I've not done what he called me to do. And he said, the only answer for this, for you to be saved is to throw me overboard. And as soon as you do that, then the storm will abate, it will, it will stop. And so, reluctantly, because at first they, they weren't prepared to do that, he says they, they put their hands on the oars and they were trying to row for all they, they could to get out of this storm, but they realized it was getting even more uh, difficult. And so in the end, they did what Jonah said, and they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. And I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's one of those stories, of course, that we love to tell the children. In our bookshop, we have many books on Jonah and the whale. It doesn't actually say it was a whale. Um, it says it was a great fish. 
but we know for one thing, Jonah. And last time, it seems a few weeks probably since we, uh, we were on to Jonah, but I mentioned the very fact of in, in all of the illustrations that we see in the children's books, you get the idea that Jonah, he kind of is thrown over into the sea and immediately this fish comes and swallows him. But when you read this account carefully, maybe it wasn't quite like that. What if it swallowed Jonah when he was dead? Because when Jonah is writing about his experience, what does he say? In verse 3 he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now notice what it says. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down into the moorings of the mountains. That means he went right down to the bottom of the sea. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. And so the indications are that he didn't just kind of floated on top of the surface and the fish came and took him up. They generally say it takes about a minute and a half to drown. And so by the time that he is thrown down and he literally goes down, the seaweed is wrapped around him, he is conscious of that. And he actually goes to the bottom of the sea. And the indications are that anybody who would go through that experience certainly would have drowned. In other words, Jonah wasn't alive in the fish, but he actually was dead. And so we find that, yes, the, the great fish came and swallowed him up. And the reason that we can think of these things is because of what Jesus said about Jonah. And in Matthew 12, uh, I mean, this is why we know that this story isn't just a story. This is the real truth because Jesus never would tell anything that was untrue. And he said this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the and be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So was Jesus alive when he was in the heart of the earth? Of course not. We know that he died. But Jesus is actually referring to the experience of Jonah. It would be like the experience that he would be going through because he would be put in the tomb once he had died and for three days and three nights there is Jesus and he said just as it was with Jonah so it will be with me. And so it seems very likely that Jonah was dead and swallowed by the fish. Of course we know that God commanded this great fish to swallow him up. Interesting, isn't it? How we can maybe just take on board things that, that we kind of think, well, that must have been the way it was and that, that Jonah was actually alive. In, I mean, some people would question how he could live in the, in the whale's belly for three days and three nights with no air and so on. Well, it could be that the reason was that he was dead anyway. And so there was a greater miracle taking place because God was going to raise up Jonah from the dead. And so in that last verse that we read about, it says, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so, praise God, Jonah comes alive. It's a resurrection. And the, uh, the Jews believe, actually, that what happened is that that he was actually spewed out of the mouth of the great fish onto the coast of Israel. So the fact that, you know, and for three days and three nights, this 
fish is now swimming back towards the place that, the last place that Jonah wants to be is back where he started from. He wanted to get away from God. So God is driving him back. And, uh, and then it says it just literally spews him out. Isn't it interesting that, that God spoke to the whale? There's a miracle in itself. God speaks to it and commands it to vomit Jonah out of its belly. And it has to do that. I was saying earlier, you know, that, that when God made man, it says in Genesis 1.26 that God had a divine consultation. They had made everything except man. But when it came to making man, creating man, it said, let us make man in our image. Who are the us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man, because it's in the plural. Let us make man in our image, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living creature that creepeth on the earth, over the cattle, and so on. And so, it's no problem to God, because... While Adam had lost that authority, they no longer could command the animals in the way that now we find it was the law of uh, the claw and uh, the mouth, and they devoured one another. And so we still have that on the earth today, but that wasn't how it was in the Garden of Eden. All the animals were perfectly at peace with one another until man's sin came, and man lost control of the authority and dominion. He gave that over to Satan, and he was now the one who said, I'm the God of this world. And God's intention was for man to have that dominion, that power. So, uh, but it's no problem to God to be able to say to the fish, you know, swallow Jonah, and then to bring him out. And, uh, but resurrection life is, is what happened, I believe, to Jonah when he hit that uh, seashore. He now was alive. And when you read this carefully, and when you look at um, verse 4, it says, I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. These are probably the last words that Jonah was conscious as he was in the deep, as he was sinking, as he was dying. Yet, he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. He was still in faith with God. He, he, he was thinking, I've got to get out of this thing. I'm prepared to die uh, because I, I cannot see that I can go ahead with what God is calling me to do. The waters then surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So these are his last thoughts of what was happening to him. And he records it here. He knows he went down to the bottom. And then he says, yet you have brought up my life from the pit. Praise God. And so it's an interesting thought. that, But the bottom line with this is, that God was still not giving up on Jonah. And that's good news for you and me. Even though we may have missed it, we may have run away, we may have not really got into all that God has called us to do. And yet God is still saying, it's okay, I'm still, I'm still going to use you. Sometimes we write ourselves off, we think God has written us off. And as, as long as we will even come, as uh, Jonah did, and have in his heart this very fact, I will look to your holy temple. I will look to your ways. Uh, God is prepared, you know, to keep on speaking to you. And maybe he has been speaking to you, and you've been hearing God saying certain things into your life. And particularly when it comes to callings that God gives us, uh, in the way that he wants to serve us. And we all should be looking at, well, you know, am I really doing what God has called me to do? Am I in the place of usability, teachability? One of the things that, that is so important in college life or in, in our school life is to have students who are teachable. Some people think they know it all. And they close their heart and their spirit. But, you know, we'll never get to an end of knowing the things of God until we see Jesus face to face, and then it will all be understood. We will have understanding like we never had before. When we see him, we will be like him. And there's a sense in which while we have the mind of Christ, we have to think through the issues of, of what the Word uh, says to us. But, you know, have we been running away like Jonah? 
God has actually spoken. He's put a call on our life. And, and we've been saying, no, that can't be me. And, and yet, you know, God doesn't give up. Holy Spirit keeps on prompting us and drawing us and challenging us and saying, but this is really what I've got for you. And we can use all the excuses of Jeremiah and say, you can't use me. Didn't Moses do the same? He said to God, you want me to lead Israel? Choose Aaron. He can speak a lot better than me. But, you know, it's when you come to the point where you think that you can't be used by God. He says, now you're candidate. Because, no, you can't do it, but I can do it through you. And it's always God's way. If we think we can do it for him, we don't need God, do we? And, of course, that would be foolishness. So, the bottom line is, beloved, maybe you've been running away from some areas that God's been touching on, but the best thing to do is get right back. That's where God put Jonah in the end. He put him back on the seashore of Israel. He said, let's look at it again. I still want you to go to Nineveh. And he was still finding it so difficult. Initially, it was willful disobedience. He just said, I'm not going to do it, God. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. And therefore, he paid his fare to get away as far as he could from having to do it. But now he is now in a different frame of mind. It's almost like now it's reluctance kind of obedience. He's got an idea, having had this experience of being swallowed up by a fish and, and coming back to life. Wow. There must be something in this. But he's still a little bit reluctant, as we'll see as we go on in the next few weeks, as we continue to study this book, which brings about the greatest revival that's ever been. And so now we find he even gets angry, you know, of the very fact that God is going to forgive these people, these Ninevites, who he hates. They're the enemy. And so the question is, did the fish pick up a dead body? In line with what Jesus said, it would appear so. They didn't just, he wasn't alive inside the belly until, you know, he was thrown out of the mouth of the fish. But we need to know that this God of ours is a God of mercy. Maybe you question, is the life that you're living in Christ, is it really working for you? Sometimes we find things don't work out as we expected them to. And why is God allowing this? And why has God done that? You know, we look at things that are real problems in our thinking, but it's because we don't think like God. He sees the beginning from the end. We say, well, why didn't that person get healed? Why didn't that person, you know, carry out the things that we thought would happen? And, but God knows all the answers. But we, we do have to question ourselves is, are we really enjoying the life that Christ has given to us? If he promised us abundant life, are we living the abundant life? Or are we living in something that we don't find very satisfactory? I'm not enjoying the Christian life. Well, maybe there's something wrong. You know, we had um, a problem with uh, our washer um, a couple of weeks back. And it, whenever we turned the washer on, it fused everything. You know, we could hear the fuse box click off. And uh, Heather was getting a little bit frustrated. She had a lot of washing to do. Um, we kept trying it. I said, well, look, we, we better leave it. And the next day, we did the same. And as soon as we turned the thing on, fuses everything. And then we were going to Andrew's conference. So I said, well, you know, we'll have to, you know, get somebody to have a look at it when we come back. And, uh, and so we came back from the conference and they said, well, I've just got to get Vanessa's plumber. It's as if Vanessa owns this plumber, but he actually did sort out our uh, dishwasher, so we knew he was good and reliable. And so uh, Heather rang him up and said, you know, can you come? And uh, so we arranged for him to come. And, uh, and so he comes, and uh, he kind of, we open the door for him, and he, he, he looks at the wash, and he, he goes like that. And it starts. I think, 
come on, why? You know, we tried that over and over again. And he, he's kind of a little bit bemused. We've called him. I'm thinking, we're paying all this money for him to come and it's actually working. And <laughs> so uh, I said to him, I said it definitely wasn't working. Just to make sure we hadn't, you know, got him out on false pretenses. And uh, so he said, well, he says... Um, he says, the thing is, I am not going to do anything with it. He says, the thing is, if it's working, you don't touch it. Because I thought maybe he'd begin to try and sort out why it didn't. And he said, uh, he says, I'm not putting my hands on that machine. It's working. And if it isn't broken, why try to fix it? I was thinking about that, you know. He, uh, he came to the conclusion, that, and he probably was right, that the reason is that maybe some damp had got into it because prior to it going off, we hadn't had the central heating on. When we came back from the conference, the house was really cold. We put the heating on, and so, uh, so he thought that probably what had happened, it had dried the thing out, and it obviously was the electrics, and uh, he said maybe there was some damp in and, I, you know, when I was thinking about that, I thought, isn't that just like sometimes what we're like? The thing's not working for us. This Christian life that, you know, and, and we look at other Christians and they're, they're bouncing about and they've got joy and we're not exactly feeling that way. What is wrong? Well, you might have a little bit of damp in there somewhere. Because in Colossians, it tells us that we are complete in Jesus He's done everything that is necessary for our life to be exactly what the Word says, that we should be full of joy. You know, because if Satan has stealed your joy, then you become miserable. And one of the big areas that the enemy works on always, can I take away their joy? Why does he do that? Because he knows the Word as well. And he knows that the Word says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The one way to get believers weak, take their joy away. Get them grumbling. Get them complaining. Get them gossiping. Get division. And sure enough, he's going to steal our joy. Because while ever we're grumbling and complaining, and isn't that what kept Israel out of the promised land? They grumbled. They complained. Poor old Moses, he didn't find it easy leading all of these maybe two, three million people out of Egypt, and yet they'd come out with great joy. They came out with possessions. They had everything that they needed, got provided every day, miracle after miracle, day after day, but they grumbled because, well, it's always the same. You know, it's the same manner, the same fowl of the air that's been, and they, they couldn't see that this was a miracle after miracles. And so they entered not into the promised land because they hadn't got into the rest of the Lord. There's a rest for the people of God. And that's, that's the place you can maintain your joy in spite of everything that is coming against you. And you must maintain it because the Lord has given you joy. You know, we, we say that the devil can counterfeit all of the gifts of the Spirit. And he does. People get healed in the name of of Jesus when it's Satan doing it. People go to seances and they have experiences of getting healed. And you think, well, how can that be? To know the devil even gets people speaking in tongues. I've heard of Mormons who speak in tongues. They think it's the Holy Spirit. But it's no Holy Spirit because they don't know the one who is the Holy Spirit. But he can counterfeit those things, but the one thing that Satan can never counterfeit is the fruit of the Spirit. He cannot love. He has only got hate. And so we know that everything that is in the way of division and gossip and murmurings and grumblings, that's what the devil was like. He was murmuring in heaven as the archangel in a very high position with Gabriel and Michael. But he wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to be in control. And so he began to grumble. And he says, and I'll ascend to the throne of God. I will do this. 
And he got the eye disease, and so often it's so easy to catch that same disease if we're not careful that we are registering on ourselves. It was the message that Cecil was bringing in connection with healing. This is so often the reason we don't receive is because we're not going to Jesus. We're looking at ourselves, and, and when you're looking at yourself, then you'll find it doesn't work. And we're trying to work it out with our own, as uh, Andrew would say, our own little peanut brain. But Jesus is the one we got to look to. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. He's the healer. Thank God he chooses to use us, and he will tell us to lay hands on the sick. And it's his life that comes through. It's not anything to do with our life, our power. It's his power. But he will use us, and he wants to use us in that way. He wants to draw people to himself. But if it's not working, beloved, maybe you just need drying out a little bit. Maybe you've allowed a bit of dampness to creep into your life, you know, and you're not on fire. You know, when we get fire, it clears out the damp. And uh, we need to get fire in our bones again, you know, for the gospel to go out. So Jesus... You know, when he went to the cross, he included you in the cross. He also took you into the grave. It says, you know, that that Jesus said that he was going to go into the heart of the earth. It said in uh, in that section that we read in uh, in Jonah, it says, "Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice." That is, Sheol is, is the term that was used, particularly in the Old Testament, and it was the place of the dead. It simply means that's where the dead go. It's not hell as we know, which is the separation um, from, from heaven, but it's a place under the Old Covenant where people would go. It's the place of the departed. It's the place of the dead. And, and Jonah is saying, this is where I was going, and Jesus said, I also... Uh, as Jonah um, went into the very heart of the earth, so will I. He was put in to the heart of the earth. To say that there is a place in the center of the earth where, where the dead have been taken. And Jesus told the story of the Lazarus and you know the, uh, the one who, in fact, was in faith. And they were in a separate place. Thank God that Jesus said that after his resurrection, he could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He knew that there was a better place and that even without having done much for God, that, that thief had only made a confession of Christ, but it was sufficient to get him into heaven. But how much more important it is, we knowing this truth, that we should be involved in all that God has called us. We're not going to be running away, beloved. We're going to say, here am I, Lord. Use me. And that was a cry of Isaiah the prophet. And yet, one thing that it said when we were looking at Jeremiah, and we'll just close with this, going back uh, to that, that prophet, and what a prophet he was. He was uh, a man who found it so difficult, it wasn't easy, uh, in the time that Jeremiah was called to minister. But I found something, I was looking at this the other day, and I found it so significant, because this is what God said to Jeremiah, the one who said back to God, you can't use me, I'm no speaker, I can't do anything for you. And then God said to him, see, I have this day, this is verse 10 of the first chapter, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And do you know that that is still the commission of the church today? We're still being called to do those things. And yet, God says, I have put you over the nations this authority of the believer, if we really got a hold of it, if we understood the authority of the church in this day, the only way that we can save this nation is not through Dr. Mr. Cameron or you know, the leaders in Parliament. We know that they are there to set laws and rules, but the greatest authority in this, this world is the church and in this nation. 
Because we have been given the same authority. I have set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. What to do? To root out, pull down, to destroy, to throw down all of the things that we find in society that, that have been set up. Somebody wrote in the newspaper that this government have done the most against the family. And yet that was the very premise on which Mr. Cameron came into office. He said, I'm going to change things. Everything is going to be... But they have gone through and looked at everything that's been done over the last few years. And everything is working against the family. And, and yet that's how God started things in the first place. He started with the family, with Adam and Eve. And someone has said, as the family goes, so goes the church. And that's why in these days, the family situation is something that should be really looked at uh, from the church point of view, that if, if we don't have good families in the church, living by the principles of the word, then we'll find it so difficult to see this authority manifest. But when you've got agreement, there's power. That's why it says in the book of Acts, in those early days, it says they were all of one heart, one mind, one accord. You get that kind of agreement, Holy Spirit comes in and he does all kinds of things. It would amaze us. And all it needs is the people that will live together, believe together, stand together, not criticize, not pull down uh, those things. The things that Jeremiah was told to pull down were the works of Satan. But if we're pulling one another down in these days as the church, whether it's you know, other churches, thank God we've got churches that work together in this town, 14, that will come under the banner of churches together. There is real chance of revival when you get that kind of... We know we're on different kind of ways of worship and other things, but if we have the basic facts together, correct, which is, you know, faith in the Lord Jesus. He is the only way of salvation. There is no other way other than the Lord Jesus and that, that God has called us to be together. And the strongest words that Jesus ever used is love one another. Love God and love one another. And on those two, you keep every commandment that God has ever made. But if we don't, we're breaking them all. How important. And then, having said that, prior to that, this is what God did for Jeremiah. It says, the Lord, this is in verse 9, he put forth his hand and touched the mouth. He says, he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And that, you know, who can get a hold of that? You know, God is wanting, beloved, to touch your mouth and to have his words in your mouth. Now, you can't have wrong words once God has touched your mouth, but how important it is to let God, you know, sometimes we have to keep our mouth shut. Some of you will know that because we can run off at a tangent and before we know, the devil has taken those words and is using them for his end. But if God touches your mouth, then it begins to change your way of, and your attitude towards people and situations. And so now we're acting in a completely different way. It's not normal for people to be like that. We want to demand our rights. We want to say why it should be this and why it should be that. And yet we know, beloved, in these days we've got enemies trying to run over us, and uh, we know that in this church, and we've gone from one situation to another. It seems as if you kind of, and I think it's God's grace, and maybe in your own personal life you found this. There are times that you can think, wow, this is great, everything is running smoothly, and everything is going well, and then suddenly a crisis of some kind comes, and the dangers are, you know, we can, we can go down, and God is saying, nothing's altered. It's just that the enemy has decided to have another go and is trying to pull things down because you're building things up. As we're trying to build things up for the kingdom, the devil wouldn't be the devil if he wasn't trying to stop that or pull it down. And we've found that in every ministry that we've ever run. The first words somebody prophesied over me while we were doing the training for the school, I'll never forget it. 
And uh, I'd more or less completed the training. We'd been down in Swindon, and it was uh, kind of the fourth or the fifth day. And I was sat, I'd, I'd finished. Heather was still having to continue. She hadn't quite finished yet. And, uh, and I, I was in this place just having a drink, and, and there was this, I didn't know him, and he, 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 I saw him staring at me and looking over, and he came and he said, I think I've got a word from the Lord for you. And I kind of looked at him because I didn't know him, and you think, well, who is this guy? And uh, it turned out actually to be head of a, a school. Um, I got to know and uh, became uh, quite a good friend. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Are you serious about starting this school? And I said, well, yes. And then he said, the Lord says, the devil will follow you everywhere you go because of the school. And that was it. I thought, well, that, that's really heartening, isn't it? You know, that's really something to cheer you up. But I, I took the word, and you know, the devil uses the mouth and things like this against us all the time. Situations that I could tell you about that it seems crazy. Why would anybody even want to do that? And yet God has used the mouth of people who are not even believers to encourage us and give us guidance, which I found amazing. Even an Ofsted inspector, he sat I had taken him, actually, I'd brought him up here when this was like a building site and um, showing him, uh, you know, the premises and, uh, and so on. And, and the, the, these, these uh, I found even God will use, you know, Balaam's ass to speak to you. And sometimes you think, well, can I take these words? And Well, you, you just get a, an, you know, a witness in your spirit. This is God speaking through someone who you wouldn't... If it was Andrew Womack or, you know, Wendell Parr saying something, and yet, you know, God sometimes speaks in, in unusual ways to you. And uh, I remember even being up at Thomas Street, and uh, I was sat in the car with the inspector... Uh, at that time, the school was in the Temperance, and, and I was showing him that building. It seems we have a history of showing people around buildings, but, but this inspector, he, said, he just said to me, he says, uh, uh, and how long uh, do you own this building? I said, no. And he said, oh. He says, uh, have you got a lease on it? So I said, yes. And he said, how long? I said, five years. And he just shook his head. He says, no. He says, not long enough. So I said, well, what do you think, 10 years? So he says, yes. Isn't that amazing? And I, you know, and we were there 10 years. But, of course, we were told we couldn't stay any longer than that, a lot of circumstances. But in, in that period, you know, the way things went, it could have really shaken, you know, your faith. And yet God was ahead. He was always ahead. He's always telling you things of the future. I mean, uh, Heather can tell you... She keeps accounts of lots of these things. And God said this. And sometimes I, I look at her and say, that can't be. You've got to listen sometimes to your wife, haven't you? And, you know, God speaks through. And, and that's why, uh, you know, in, in a marriage, women are called to be helpmates, you know, to their husbands. And you, you learn that, that God gives you direction and guidance in different ways and sometimes I've said, that can't be. And I said, no, we're, you know, I don't believe that that. And yet, you have to sometimes go cap in hand and say, you were right. But there's a sensitivity sometimes and, uh, in the spirit realm. And we need to foster that. And we need to, because that voice, beloved, will come to you. If you're serious about Jesus, if you're serious about God, if you're serious about doing his will, the voice will come to you. It took me two years to accept the calling to go into full time. I loved my job. I was an accountant. It was a great firm to work for. And God had to wean me off. It took time. And you know what? I became really disconsolate with that job over that period. But the reason was is because God was having to take me that way because I didn't perhaps respond as quickly as he would like me to. And yet, uh, and so it is with all kinds of situations. We know 
Uh, I find it exciting when we have all of these students. Why have they come to Dewsbury, of all places? Why does somebody come from Ireland? You know, beautiful Ireland, green Ireland, and they want to live in Dewsbury. And now they have become almost as if they're born and bred in Yorkshire. They think very little of Ireland now. Well, occasionally. But you know what? It's because God has got plans for us. Amen. And uh, didn't he say, I've got plans and things that uh, you'd be amazed at if I reveal them to you. We should be getting excited about this revival. I don't know whether you can see it. I can see it. And, um, but we want it to manifest. Amen. And it will only manifest through the church. God's intention is to do everything through his church. We have to say, even to Bible students, you've got to be in the local church. and Let what you're learning be a blessing to the pastors, the ministers. I think that that will be one of the great things, you know, that, um, that we will find that churches, they're already finding it um, down in Walsall. Some of the students have, have gone into local churches. They have been such a blessing that even vicars are saying, wow, we need to get some of our people into that Bible college. That would be great, wouldn't it? Praise the Lord. We're so thankful. We've got students coming into our prayer meetings. And um, what a blessing that is. We're hearing God together. And uh, I believe that really, you know, that that's what we should be doing. You get to know God personally, but you get to know God as a body. And uh, you'll be amazed at what God will open. We've got lots of things, uh, I believe, going to happen in the next few years. And God is looking for people. Anybody available? Anybody will say what Isaiah said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Be careful. You know, God's on your case. Amen. But he always has it for good. Amen. Father, we just thank you. You're a great God. We, we love to serve you, Lord. And yet, so often you, you call us to do things that we would be like Jonah. We would be like Jeremiah and say, Lord, it can't be me. And yet, Father, we know that, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Thank you, Father, that you have promised a great future for us all. We know ultimately we will be with our Lord and Savior in heaven and uh, in those many mansions that he has prepared for us. But Father, we know that this is the day. This is the day of salvation. This is our time. This is the only generation that can save this generation. We pray for our young people, Lord, that they might not be put off in any way or feel incapable, but Lord, you are ready to use as many as will call on your name. We give you thanks for that and praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. For more information, please check out www.jewsburygospelchurch.org.uk.